Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you here on Thursday, November the 17th. This week we focus on an important and neglected global health issue, adolescence and self-harm. Today, Thursday, November the 17th, we publish online the first of its kind, really, a population study which assesses the frequency of self-harm in adolescence and what proportion of that is carried through into early adulthood. The article has been coordinated and written by authors from the Institute of Psychiatry here in London and also from the Murdoch Child Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Let's now hear more about this important study from a press conference held in London to launch the study. Okay, so thank you very much for coming to this um, press briefing this morning. It's on self-harm in teenagers and adults. We have um, four speakers today. We have Dr. Nile Boyce, he's a psychiatrist and senior editor at The Lancet. We have Dr. Paul Moran, who is clinical senior lecturer and honorary consultant psychiatrist at the Institute of Psychiatry. King's College London, and he's also at South London and Maud's the NHS Foundation Trust. Um, we have George dialing in, who hopefully can hear me okay. Uh, the sound is not perfect, but um, we'll see how we get on. If I switch off, uh, it'll be an indication that um, I'm not hearing you well enough, and we'll try and rely on the audio. Okay, well, we'll try and speak up as well for you, George. So, George is Professor George Patton, Professor of Adolescent Health Research at the University of Melbourne, and hopefully we'll keep him for the whole time. Um, And we've also got Professor Keith Horton, who's a consultant psychiatrist and director of the the Centre for Suicide Research at the University of Oxford. Um, So Niall's going to speak first, followed by Paul, followed by George, followed by Keith. They're all going to give a brief introduction. So if Niall can start off. Well, I think that the first thing um, to say about self-harm especially self-harm in adolescence, and here I'm talking about things such as overdoses or, um, or cutting, uh, that this is something which is a very anxiety, indeed a very frightening thing for everybody involved, uh, for the children, adolescents themselves, for their families, and indeed for the professionals who deal with them. And as with, with many situations, um, it's a lack of knowledge um, that is at the root of this fear. So what do we know about self-harm in adolescence at the moment and why was it that, that as one of the senior editors of The Lancet I was interested in this paper? Well in answer to, to what do we know, the, in, in short not as much as we would like. Uh, if you go to the website of the Royal College of Psychiatrists it'll give you a figure of one in ten young people self-harming at some point. However we need to be aware of these, uh, the limitations on, on these figures. The first thing is that uh, they might be taken from A&E departments and not everybody who self-harms would go to accident emergency or to seek medical help. The other thing we need to be aware of is that that kind of sample doesn't always give us the pattern of the manner in which people self-harm. For instance, people who take overdoses might be more likely to present to emergency services than people who cut themselves. This paper I found... Uh, an extremely exciting, extremely interesting paper. The first thing is that it gives us a longitudinal pattern. It doesn't just give us a bare number as to the people who self-harm, but it also gives us an idea of how this problem develops. And this is extremely useful uh, for clinicians because it means, as with any medical condition which is managed or any mental health condition, that we can give some idea of prognosis. Very importantly as well, There's an element uh, of the paper which looks at associated risks. 
And this I find very, very important. We're not talking here about the sort of lofty existential talk about what's behind self-harm. What we're talking about here are hard, pragmatic uh, data points which we can look at, which we can hopefully um, base interventions around to prevent further self-harm and, of course, the, the escalation into uh, suicide. So, as I say, when I saw this paper, I thought it was a tremendous contribution to the literature, and I was very pleased, indeed, honoured to be able to take it through to publication. Great, thank you. So, hand it over to Paul. Thanks, Mara. It's a very generous introduction. Um, <clears throat> I mean, just to recap uh, a little bit at the beginning uh, on some of the points Niall was making in terms of background relating to the definition of self-harm, because I suspect that's a sort of question for some individuals. Um, in this study, we looked at, we used a standard approach, which we took a broad-based definition of self-harm, encompassing a wide variety of behaviours. But underpinning all of this was a definition that this was a, an act of non, with a non-fatal outcome, which was initiated deliberately by individuals with the intention of causing harm to themselves. So we really were seeking to measure the, the, a wide variety of self-harm, from self-cutting and burning through to self-battery uh, to non-recreational risk-taking behaviour, and then a range of other self-harming behaviours, um, self-strangulation, jumping from heights, um, so, so a wide variety of behaviours. Um, that's the first point I want to make. Uh, again, to reiterate why we did the study, uh, it's self-harm is a major public health problem. It's, it's one of the most significant uh, predictors of completed suicide. And there's been very little longitudinal research in this area, as, as Niall was pointing out. And if you really want to track what happens to a behaviour as it evolves over time, you, you need to sort of, rather than take a single snapshot, follow a cohort of individuals. And, and that's what we did in this, opportunity, in this study which was a collaborative study uh, um, set up by George's team originally, and I'm grateful to George for allowing me to work with him on this data. Um, the original study, George perhaps will say a little bit more about, but it was an, it's an ongoing project looking at the health and behaviour of, of, a, of a sample of, uh, representative sample of young people from the state of Victoria. And they've been sampled from the, ages of, from the age of 14 and followed repeatedly um, until their late 20s and tracked over time with repeat reassessments of their health and behaviour. And um, I suppose I, to pull out the main uh, headline findings from, from, the, the, from, the, from the study that I'd like to highlight, um, self-harm was commonly reported in the teenage phase. About one, one in 12 teenagers, that's 8%, um, reported self-harming between the ages of 14 and 19. And during the, the teenage phase of the study... Um, Cutting and burning were the commonest forms of self-harm, and that, that's a finding that's been uh, reported in other studies of, of uh, cross-sectional surveys of young people. At each phase of the follow-up, we, we recorded more girls reporting self-harm than boys. So this was primarily a sort of teenage female phenomenon, um, although there were male self-harmers as well. And teenagers who self-harmed in the study were more likely to report being um, seriously depressed or anxious and also reported engaging in a range of other unhealthy behaviours, um, including antisocial behaviour, um, substance misuse, harmful use of alcohol, and cigarette smoking. And as they aged, um, this cohort of, of teenagers, the, the, the proportion of them reporting self-harm substantially declined, and I think that's shown quite graphically in, this, in the figure that you've got in the handout, that there was a substantial drop in self-harm um, and indeed, 90% of teenage self-harmers 
um, stop self-harming or, or stop reporting self-harming. Um, teenage girls were more likely to continue self-harming than teenage boys who'd self-harmed. And then there was a small group of individuals um, who started to self-harm as young adults. Now, that, that, that small group of individuals, they were quite interesting because they, they were more likely to report being depressed or anxious in teenage years. So I suppose the key findings and the key points that I'd like to emphasise, and George will pick up on this as well, I think, is that self-harm was common, one in 12, but the majority gave it up. Um, notwithstanding, teenage self-harmers have serious emotional difficulties often, um, and they need help and support. And in fact, some of these emotional difficulties don't spontaneously remit, and they may have persistent effects on later life, as evidenced by a finding that teenage depression and anxiety predicted emergent self-harm in adulthood. So we think, although the findings offer some reassurance, they should offer reassurance to people working with young people, to family members, to parents and teachers. We also think it's important that those living and working with young people are able to spot the signs of persistent distress and that they enable young people to get the help they, that they deserve for those problems. Otherwise, there may be persistent ramifications later in life. I think that's probably where I'll stop and pass on to George. Thank you, Paul. Um, um, it's just to let you know that the sound quality at this end isn't as good as I would like it to be. Uh, but I'm just checking first off uh, that you can hear me um, at the London end. Yes, we can. Yeah. Terrific. I'm pleased. Um, Paul, um, I thought I would say just a little bit about uh, the study and a little bit more about this uh, window of vulnerability that we're picking up for self-harm during the mid-teens. Um, so in terms of uh, the study, first off, this was a longitudinal study of 2,000 young Victorians who we started studying uh, around the end of puberty, so that is around the age of 14 to 15 years, um, and we tracked this group of 2,000 young people through on nine occasions over 15 years. Um, and the focus, as you know, of this paper is on um, the experience of self-harm at each of those points. Um, in terms of uh, the state of Victoria, uh, many of you will know that it is the smallest of the mainland states in Australia. It has a population of five and a half million people, of which uh, four million live in the capital, Melbourne. Um, this study is a strong study for looking at self-harm because in the majority of instances, self-harm was reported only on one point. Um, and this study, with its design of multiple waves uh, during the teens, at six months, the intervals was ideally placed to pick up episodes of self-harm as they occurred. Now, before I go on, I just wanted to check. You are still with me in terms of hearing? Yes. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, I'd like to say something about the window of vulnerability that we're picking up here. So if we are thinking... Self-harm, I think Keith might say something about this as a... We're losing you a little bit there. Emotional control. And George, we're Sorry. losing you a bit. Could you just repeat the last sentence? Okay, fabulous. Okay. So if you think about window of vulnerability, it appears to open at around the time of puberty. If you were to take uh, two uh, girls aged 14, same age, same grade, 
one in late puberty, one in early puberty, the risks for self-harm of the girl in late puberty is about five-fold higher than the girl in early puberty. Why that is, we're uncertain, but it may be something to do uh, with uh, the biological changes that are occurring at that time. Uh, there are tremendous changes in the hormonal environment, and we know that these affect emotions, particularly in young girls. There are also tremendous changes in some of those brain structures, such as the amygdala, which we know to be very important in generating emotions. In evolutionary terms, this may have been something that was a preparation for mating and parenting, but in the modern context, it's significantly quite different. Um, one study that we have done looking at emotional control as girls pass through puberty is that they report a much greater level of problems in dealing with anger, dealing with anxiety, dealing with unhappiness and being able to relax and feeling tense in later puberty than in earlier puberty. It's clear that the window for risk for self-harm diminishes and very rapidly as teenagers approach the end of the teens. There may be a number of reasons for that, and one of those reasons may be something to do with learning new strategies for dealing with difficult emotions. The other change that is happening in late puberty is those parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is crucially involved in emotional regulation, in planning, in problem solving, that is now developing a pace, and it continues to develop right through until at least the mid-twenties. Developmental psychologists have talked about a developmental gap in brain development that occurs during the mid-teens, where these problems related to emotional control, such as self-harm, become a lot more common. Now, clearly, it's not all about biological changes. The social context makes a huge difference. Paul has talked about the association with other emotional problems characterized by high levels of depression and anxiety. We know from this and other studies that it is those young people who could be said to be on a fast track to adulthood, uh, those kids who are at the margins of their families, the margins of school, who are engaged in early sexual activity, who are using alcohol and other drugs at an early age, this group of kids are at the highest risk for self-harm. Um, and it may be something to do with the emotional hazards that they're facing at this age. Um, Keith may talk something about some of the subgroups and the youth cultures that are associated with higher rates of self-harm. The implications, I think, of all this for prevention important uh, because I think we are talking about a window of vulnerability which lasts through the mid-teens where we believe um, a social scaffolding for young people is very important. By that I mean young people are going to be most protected from self-harm by good connections and good involvement with their families, with school, engagement and commitment to school, engagement with their local neighborhood and good relationships with their peers and avoiding some of the emotional hazards I've talked about. I think I'll leave it there. Great. Thank you, George. So over to Keith. Uh, fine. Well, thank you very much. Maybe I can just sort of try and set the, uh, this work in a sort of broader context in relation to uh, suicide and self-harm and uh, uh, prevention. Um, I, I find it very useful to think in terms of an iceberg model uh, at the tip of the iceberg, you have the tragic outcome of suicide. Um, 
Uh, and then you have the uh, large numbers of uh, individuals, and here, of course, we are referring to adolescents, who present to hospitals or other clinical services uh, following self-harm. Um, so that's the uh, overt, if you like, um, uh, cases. And then below the uh, hidden away to, to a large degree, you have self-harm at the community level, uh, and we now know from studies like the one we're discussing today, ones that we've been involved in and others, that there is a very large number, this is a very large population of youngsters who are self-harming in the community, um, and we estimate around one in eight of them come to clinical attention or, or go to hospital, maybe a little bit um, more than one in eight uh, come to any sort of clinical attention. Um, so some of these will, uh, this is the sort of hidden population, some of these will uh, be totally hidden. Uh, in a large number of cases, um, friends will be aware of the problem, um, will notice, uh, for example, cuts, uh, and I think the hidden population is particularly about um, those who are self-cutting, self-mutilating. Uh, family members will be aware uh, schools may, may become aware, and of course this is a source of great concern. Uh, in terms of the broader context, we have a suicide prevention strategy uh, for England, as uh, we also have, there are also strategies for Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and many other countries, including of course Australia. Um, and um, we, uh, current, the current strategy is being revised, uh, we've been doing pretty well until recently, until the recession hit, and uh, unfortunately the numbers have gone up. But to give you an idea of the numbers of suicides, we're talking about known suicides in the total population, this isn't just adolescents, of around uh, 4,500 per year in England. Uh, that is double, approximately double the number of road traffic accident deaths. Um, which may come as a, a surprise to you. Of course, we have made some considerable advances in preventing road traffic accidents. Uh, in thinking about the iceberg model, uh, self-harm presenting to clinical services um, from uh, work we've done, a multi-centre study of self-harm in England project, we know that some well over one in a hundred girls, teenage girls, will present to hospital with self-harm each year, uh, approximately one in 200 boys. But what about self-harm at the community level, which is what this study is uh, uh, mainly about? Um, the, as I said, a lot of uh, individuals will not present to clinical services uh, and be able to get help, although potentially they could get help through other uh, sources, through the internet and uh, uh, other, uh, by other means. Um, as has been said, we think it's somewhere around 8-10% of adolescents report self-harm by the age of 15. As you heard, it's much more common in girls and boys. And of course, the figure of somewhere between 6 and 10% of, uh, of uh, teenagers self-harming uh, means the numbers are, are, are huge that we're uh, talking about. And of course, this is a cause of much distress. So or represents much distress as well as being the cause of it. So the, the crucial question is, what is the significance of self-harming behaviour in these uh, um, mid-teenage years for uh, subsequent mental health and uh, for uh, future self-harming behaviour and indeed uh, suicide? And this is the, um, important, these are the really important questions that are addressed uh, 
uh, by this study. Uh, it was conducted in Australia. Is this relevant to us? Yes, is the answer. We've done uh, a comparative study uh, involving uh, a number of international, a number of countries, including Australia and England, and the pattern of self-harm seen at the community <coughs> level appears to be very similar. Uh, contributory factors seem to be similar. So I would say these, these findings are, are very relevant for us in the UK. Thank you. And do look out for the comment alongside this article from authors at the University of Oxford and the University of Stirling here in the United Kingdom. Well, many thanks for listening. That's all for this week. See you next time.